Hello, and welcome back once again to the Baked and Awake podcast. This is the all-new Baked and Awake podcast. Cleaner, faster, and stronger. Now with 30% less filler and twice the CBDs. I'd like to invite you to listen to any of our 84 previous episodes where you can access detailed show notes for your own research at our permanent internet home at www.bakedandawake.com. Email me, Steve, with feedback about this episode or anything else you want at talktous at bakedandawake.com. You are listening to episode 85. Today's topic is something known as the bicameral mind theory. First introduced in 1969, I believe, by one Julian Jaynes, a professor and author of a book entitled The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. If you do read show notes, you'll find I've included a link to the book in its entirety from Project Gutenberg. There will be additional resources to look at for you in those show notes in terms of links to videos as well as other books for you to dig into. So for those that care to search further, I salute you and you're welcome. Now, I do have the hardcover of this book coming to me as we speak, but for the purposes of researching the podcast episode, uh, I've been going on numerous YouTube videos uh, on Jane's and this subject, as well as the PDF version of the text that I've provided for you. Anyway, Professor Jaynes spent the rest of his career, after coming up with this theory initially and having it make a huge splash, lecturing and writing about it and defending it, and talking about topics related to it. And I find it absolutely fascinating. It's a topic that I haven't really heard. Uh, maybe... Uh, not lately, and so maybe, you know, it's something because it's been around for decades, but haven't heard of it really before, let's just say, and it really struck me. Consciousness is a topic that's always of interest to me, and this is, this is the core of the consciousness question. The topic and the book itself was hotly debated. It's debated and discussed to this day. I came away from it, as I think you may also when we're done here, with an impression that this theory, the bicameral mind itself, bicameralism, it may explain a lot of mysteries that appear to be unconnected. But perhaps in truth, all come back around to human beings, our perception of the world around us, and our parsing of what we perceive with our senses into something that we can internalize in a way and then take action towards in order to realize our aims. Safety, homeostasis, full tummies, love. I would like to point out that the book was a big deal. He spent his life defending it and talking about it. Jane's promised a sequel to the original book. He began work on it, never really finished it before he passed away. He did go so far as to give it a working title, The Consequences of Consciousness. And um, the best we have is like a collection of later essays and things that might have been what we're going to feed into the next book, but we don't have that next book from Jane's, which would have gone further in terms of updating his theory, 
um, in the face of, you know, the challenges it had uh, faced down and going further than he had with the first book. But we've got what we've got. And it's enough. Now, we're going to introduce a few other concepts, though, psycho- psychology-type concepts and, and, and consciousness sciences concepts alongside by Hammerall Mind here because, uh, in my opinion, they're inextricable, and they each bear upon the reason why we care about by Hammerall Mind in the first place. So don't worry, though. Some of these things might ring some bells for you. Some of you may even have heard of some or all of these terms. If not, don't worry about it. Get excited because this is some deep, hardcore armchair psychology we're about to get into. I'm absolutely going to recommend you go ahead and roll up a fatty or rip a big solid dab because it's about to get like weird, weird around here. Now what follows will be some relatively brief, not quite dictionary definitions, but more like Wikipedia paraphrasing definitions of these terms. Each of these terms is probably worthy of an episode in and of themselves, some of which some of them might even get it. They all have massive amounts of content out there. And I'm not just talking YouTube videos, I'm talking books, I'm talking college classes, I'm talking these are fields of study, okay? So different and talented people, most of whom are university professors or who you're going to get the rest of your info from after this. For today, you've got me. Let's start first with a topic called human behaviorism. In a nutshell, as far as I'm understanding it right now, Behaviorists view humans as not a lot more, or I should say nothing more, than big emotional animals who talk. Uh, Spark it now if you haven't yet. Spark it now. Smoke them if you got them, folks. Let's do it. I got a doobie right here in my hand. Our species, human beings, are bound by predictable responses to environmental stimuli that therefore can be leveraged through adequate understanding to modify a person's future behavior. Put a little better, we'll go straight to Wikipedia on this, link will be in the show notes, quote, behaviorism, or behaviorism, not to be confused with behavioralism. We're going to give you the definition of that as well. Behaviorism is a systematic approach to understanding the behavior of humans and other animals. It assumes that all behaviors are either reflexes produced by a response to certain stimuli in the environment or a consequence of that individual's history, including especially reinforcement and punishment, together with the individual's current motivational state and controlling stimuli. Okay, so these are the, these are the factors. This is the box you're operating within. Although behaviorists generally accept the important role of heredity in determining behavior, they focus primarily on environmental factors. All right, we won't get meta on it yet. We're going to move on to behavioralism for the differentiation between the two. Let's make sure my joint's actually lit because it's not. It went out right away.
So behavioralism is an offshoot. It's a political term and a so-called political science. We won't be dealing with it in detail today, but because it's so close in terminology to behaviorism, I wanted to provide the definition just in order so we can move on from it. Behavioralism is an approach in political science that emerged in the 1930s in the United States. It represented a sharp break from previous approaches in emphasizing an objective, quantified approach to explain and predict political behavior. It's associated with the rise of the behavioral sciences, modeled after the natural sciences. Behavioralism claims it can explain political behavior from an unbiased, neutral point of view. Behavioralism seeks to examine the behavior, actions, and acts of individuals rather than the characteristics of institutions such as legislatures, executives, and judiciaries, and groups in different social settings, and explain this behavior as it relates to the political system. You might pick up on, it's sort of the behavior of the mob there in behavioralism. Back to our core vocab, however, and the real sort of seed for this episode Cybernetics. Now, cybernetics, it's not cyborgs or cyberspace or cybertron. It's none of those things, despite the popularity of that prefix cyber in pop culture in the last, you know, 30 years or so. Cybernetics is a transdisciplinary approach for exploring regulatory systems. Norbert Wiener, probably the most famous man in this field, defined cybernetics in 1948 as, quote, the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. In other words, it is the scientific study of how humans, animals, and machines control and communicate with each other. Cybernetics is applicable when a system being analyzed incorporates a closed signaling loop, originally referred to as circular causal relationships. That is, where action by the system generates some change in its environment, and that change is reflected in the system in some manner, known as feedback, that triggers a system change. Cybernetics is relevant to, for example, mechanical, physical, biological, cognitive, and social systems. The essential goal of the broad field of cybernetics is to understand and define the functions and processes of systems that have goals and that participate in circular causal chains that move from action to sensing to comparison with the desired goal and again to action. Its focus is how anything, digital, mechanical, or biological, processes information, reacts to information, and changes, or can be changed, to better accomplish the first two tasks. Cybernetics includes the study of feedback, black boxes, and derived concepts such as communication and control in living organisms machines and organizations, including self-organization. Concepts studied by cyberneticists, as they're called, include 
but are not limited to learning. Cognition, adaptation, social control, emergence, convergence, communication, efficiency, efficacy, and connectivity. In cybernetics, these concepts, in parentheses, otherwise already objects of study in other disciplines, such as biology and engineering, are abstracted from the context of the specific organism or device. This episode was originally going to be about cybernetics all on its own because I believe cybernetics is being applied everywhere today in the modern world to sort of shape a lot of our behaviors. And, you know, this entire conversation sort of brings that up in the background Anyway, you can tell we're building to that sort of, you know, asking that question. So, finally, we have the bicameral mind. The condition of being divided into two chambers. This is a metaphor that's taken from the legislation, legislature kind of model, right? The governmental model, excuse me. It is a hypothesis, though, in psychology that argues that the human mind once operated in a state in which cognitive functions were divided between one part of the brain, which appears to be speaking, and a second part, which listens and obeys a bicameral mind. The term was coined by Julian Jaynes, who presented the idea in his, they're saying here, 1976 book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. I believe he was speaking on this topic for just a few years before the book came out, which is where this 1969 came from. That's what I'm going with, though. The 76 book, Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, wherein he made the case that a bicameral mentality was the normal and ubiquitous state of the human mind as recently as 3,000 years ago, near the end of the Mediterranean Bronze Age. So I'll jump in very briefly here to begin to sprinkle in a tiny bit of commentary and then we'll move on to some highlights from the remainder of this Wikipedia article. The bicameral mind is here described as what we'll come to understand as like the voices of the gods were in place of your internal conscience your Jiminy Cricket, so to speak. Um, The voices might be stronger or weaker in different people to differing extents based on how aware they were at all. As the article will point out later, James's definition of consciousness is one that's pretty strict and does not require, uh, well, it would include something like language as a requirement for the emergence of consciousness to be able to take place. However, one could be alive and a thinking being that could have command of language. You could be a person with language. Societies existed for a long time 
in this framework of this Jane's so-called bicameralism, but lacked introspection, lacked the ability to have full agency for themselves. Thoughts, when they occurred in the form of language, which would have been something that humanity acquired over time, thoughts couched in language in one's head at this time would have been processed in this bicameral fashion through our language processing centers. I believe it's the corpus callosum that they refer to specifically and processed as like an auditory hallucination. And this was a useful fiction that helped societies of like societies that wished to endure that were bigger than tribal communities, societies of over a hundred people and much larger, obviously, to survive, to interact with one another meaningfully in a circumstance that was up to a great point in human history, not the case. That is, under hunter-gatherer societies, you wouldn't have lived under enormous pressures of population in agricultural sedentary towns and cities, settings. These new circumstances caused language to evolve and caused consciousness to slowly evolve, eventually leading to this breakdown of the bicameral mind that will be sort of elaborated upon. Bicameral mentality would be non-conscious in its inability to reason and articulate about mental contents through meta-reflection. Okay, so this is kind of what I was saying in my own words. That consciousness would react without explicitly realizing and without the meta-reflective ability to give an account of why one did so, why one did something. The bicameral mind would thus lack meta-consciousness, autobiographical memory, and the capacity for executive ego functions, such as deliberate mind-wandering, conscious introspection of mental content. When bicamerality as a method of social control was no longer adaptive in complex civilizations, this mental model was replaced by the conscious mode of thought, which, Jaynes argued, is grounded in the acquisition of metaphorical language learned by exposure to narrative practice. So I was putting it to you a little backwards here. We would have lived with this bicameral, the gods are speaking to me and I'm hearing them in my head and I'm listening to their counsel or the muses inspired me to write this song or to write this story a voice came to me in a dream a dead relative came to me this this sort of reasoning would have held up at the tribal level and when you lived with your family alone in the mountains for hundreds of years and and didn't have a lot of contact with other people it was when complex civilizations arose, when populations became larger, when people began to need to live with one another 12 months out of the year in closer quarters, and crucially, 
when language was also becoming written language, the power of the written word and the durability of that word, the ability for one generation to leave behind their thoughts, their reflections, their findings, their understandings of the world to the next people who came along and didn't only have to rely on oral tradition and, and orally passed down teachings. This view of things, that being that you as a person could directly address the highly anthropomorphized, highly humanized gods through beseeching them, through offerings to them, through praying to them. Indeed, in by silently thinking and speaking to them in your mind. And you would receive answers from them directly. This would slowly break down when you're in a community of hundreds or thousands and you see one another around you every day. You see people begin to be able to observe their own behaviors and behaviors of others around them. And those who were on the leading edge of their awareness those who were becoming conscious quicker, this doesn't happen overnight, would naturally probably become the ones who find themselves in positions of authority over others because they would have personal authorship of their thoughts, of their actions. They would have their agency. They would be free. They would have their liberty because they would be freer to act in accordance with their desires in support of their aims and goals, some of which are very important high-order survival goals, because they had that crucial awareness that they're the one in charge, they're driving. They don't have to ask Zeus or some other minor demigod about any little decision that they want to make in their lives in order to get things done. So that's, that's me again. Another highlight from the article, Jane's evidence. All right, so Julian Jane's built a case for this hypothesis that human brains existed in a bicameral state until as recently as 3,000 years ago by citing evidence from many diverse sources, including historical literature. He took an interdisciplinary approach, drawing data from many different fields. You'll see that the debate on this article starts out with something that I picked up on reading this article as well, but it's too informative to dismiss entirely. This article is pretty pro-Janes, okay, for a Wikipedia article. It reads a lot like uh, somebody from the Julian Janes Society may have created this article. Then there's a society all about his, you know, school of thought and, and everything, uh, doctrine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're going to include the link to the Jane Society in the show notes. It's worth noting, though. It's, it's pretty pro-Jane's tone here, and, and Jane's is contentious. So he asserts, though, that until roughly the times written about in Homer's Iliad, problematic for some folks because we're not sure Homer was really historically real or not. His own writings may have not been written down until after he was dead. His stories may have been oral traditions. Anyway, humans did not generally have the self-awareness characteristic of consciousness as most people experience it today. 
Rather, the bicameral individual was guided by mental commands believed to be issued by external gods. Commands which were recorded in ancient myths, legends, and historical accounts. This is exemplified not only in the commands given to characters in ancient epics, but also the very muses of Greek mythology which sang the poems. According to Jaynes, the ancients literally heard muses as the direct source of their music and poetry. So that's pretty, you know, interesting stuff. They also cite uh, Old Testament in particular as seeming to support this lack of internalized cognitive processes. The Old Testament has a lot of the Lord handing down rules and handing down strict judgments to people for behaviors that were good, bad, or indifferent. By contrast, the New Testament has a lot more higher awareness and consciousness that is, in particular, as pertains to Jesus and his teachings, as well as sayings directly attributed to him, among others, but he's probably the best example in the New Testament. In a bit of a nutshell, this is bicameralism. So let's get back to our notes here and and look at the takeaways from bicameralism, from cybernetics and an understanding of that, which I do think cybernetics deserves its own entire treatment as an episode. As stated earlier, one of my biggest takeaways from this is if one is to say entertain the theory for a few minutes all right we don't have to take it in our hearts and carry it around with us everywhere forever and say this is it but as stated earlier i sort of felt like it seems plausible to me that many people would have become conscious at different times throughout history depending on their circumstances, depending on their environment around them, depending on the relative peacefulness and prosperity and longevity of the culture that they were being raised in, would have provided opportunities for some populations and some sections of some populations to have developed their own consciousness sooner than others. So in my opinion, these people would have very likely become the leaders, the teachers, the scholars, the superstars of their day, the, uh, you know, the first ones to be selected for leadership, tribal leadership, kingship, etc. Mystery schools, I would think, would have sprung up around populations of people who had these realizations and understandings. Language would have come along before this point in time, but writing, as it became more and more the thing, the way of capturing information for the ages, that would have paved the way for the development of this internalized agency and pointed towards the way one might begin to introspect, hence become conscious. I'm speculating here, but it feels to me like that would be the kind of thing that the earliest people to become more awake in this way, might have, like, needed to protect themselves from their neighbors, from the rest of the population around them. I mean, couldn't you be accused of witchcraft for being, you know, a little bit too uppity, a little bit too smart by knowing too many herbs to treat, you know, injuries a medicine man or woman could find themselves 
you know, either a hero or an outcast from their society and culture, right? So mystery schools, the church, these places would have been some of the only places where you could go meet other people who are also studying like you and thinking like you. You could engage with the resources of the time, such as the books and things that were being written at the time, whether they were codexes or whether they were scrolls or papyrus before that. Because many of the ideas that you would come up with would seem heretical, antithetical to the lessons of the lords, of the gods that have ruled everyone's minds up to this point. I found it interesting in that respect, and it just instantly struck me as something like, well, if I lived in the 1300s, and I thought and felt like a modern man like you and I do today, man or woman, I would have seemed even weirder than anything I can imagine being now. (laughs) I would have probably seemed scary to people unless I reined it in and figured out a way to sit back. I'm sitting back, you know, and, and look and calculate and think before acting. One might really have had to play dumb just to survive for much of history. So that was a big takeaway for me. You guys let me know your thoughts on that. Look into Bicameral Mind, the Bicameral Mind Theory and the Jane's, uh, Jane's work. I'm, I'm including a link to the Jane Society in the episode notes. I want to allow you to discover this theory more in full for yourselves. There's a lot of great talks out there on it, people discussing it and, and sort of taking it apart step by step. You know, understand his definition of consciousness was really the kind of consciousness that can only occur in humans. It, it does require language as a prerequisite for this to have a, you know, symbolic language to use inside your head. And, and the ability also to just sort of uh, have a, a sense of continuity of self is something that, you know, we think is pretty strongly just a human trait. Uh, the ability to plan for the future and think about our lives and set long term goals like that. You know, way over and above instinct to put on weight for the winter, you know, that an animal might have instinct for. Uh, small side note of a, of a takeaway. I guess this theory sort of challenges the notion of God and the gods in a lot of ways, uh, it seems to, on the face of it. Uh, or does it? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe your opinion would be that it doesn't really constitute a strong challenge and that maybe there's... Uh, still examples and reasons why we would have come up with those metaphors and, and come up with those characterizations and those anthropomorphizations for God characters, uh, archetypes in our early culture. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Does it all ring true to you at all? One of the other takeaways here, you know, going off my little bullet point list here, was the notion that even if Jane's is wrong, and his many adherents are incorrect, and the theory is untrue and inaccurate, uh, or or happen in reverse. Maybe we are more bicameral today than we used to be once upon a time, and that the lack of filter between the two lobes of the brain would have provided for that almost schizophrenic kind of interaction that one might have with voices that they hear in their heads that no one else can see or perceive. Even if it is all untrue, right? Couldn't, and indeed don't, we see scientists and PR firms and institutions of education and 
correction, like you know, the justice system, so to speak, the uh, penal, the penal system, I should say, all employing tactics and methods that would seem to exploit, if not bicameralism, exploit the tenets that we read about earlier in cybernetics and behaviorism to their ends. And it would seem to me that you would take into account everything, including the subtle understanding that something like the bicameral mind theory would indicate to you to, to, to factor for in trying to engineer behavior in a certain way out of individuals or populations of individuals. To me, it feels like it's being used all the time to shape us. Well, I used Wikipedia today for a bunch of the work that we came up with, and I, I do use Wikipedia fairly frequently these days. I don't know if it has the taint it had once uh, of amateurishness and haphazard editing that, you know, maybe 10 years ago was often sort of supposed to be uh, Wikipedia's downfall. I feel like I've learned a lot from Wikipedia over the years, and, and this article that we used today had something like 36 sources uh, references as a bibliography to this article. So someone put in a lot of work on it, and, and I found it very helpful. That said, it was almost more interesting than the article itself about bicameralism and, and the bicameral mind theory was looking at the sort of process behind the scenes here in Wikipedia for this article and how, you know, how it's being rated and treated. So you go to the bicameralism page. Yeah, so bicameralism page on Wikipedia, we have the article link for you. You go to this page and you'll see up top, the neutrality of this article is disputed. Also, the factual accuracy of this article is disputed. They give you uh, a message with that saying the dispute is about the article titles grossly distorts and undermines fair presentation of James's work. Please help to ensure that disputed statements are reliably sourced. And then they have a link to how to, how to have reliable sources, how to use and employ reliable sources. They even have a message about how and when you would be allowed to remove this message from the top of the article. But under the neutrality of this article is disputed, they have a relevant discussion thread for Wikipedia authors. Now, I think anyone can look at this. Um, I am registered as a Wikipedia author. I don't think you have to do really anything to become one. I just registered for it, you know, within the last year and haven't tried to author any articles yet. Uh, but ostensibly now I could edit an article or create an article for Wikipedia at will. Um, and I, I hope to do so one day. I just haven't figured out what topic I would try to tackle yet. But I want to go to this talk page. Okay, relevant discussion may be found on the talk page. So I went there, and I'm taking you there now because I thought it was great. This is longer than the article. Okay, so this is, this is the, when you ask yourself... How much work goes into, you know, a Wikipedia article is probably different with every article. And how factual is it or isn't it, again, different with every article. Here we're talking about psychology and, you know, philosophy and a little bit of politics and all sorts of stuff. So this is more on the serious, deeper end side of what, you know, Wikipedia should be 
dishing out um, and disseminating info-wise. But here's a thread. I'm going to read you the table of contents on the page because it's like a whole Wikipedia article about the article on the back end here. So on the table of contents, it, here, it says, number one, merge. Number two, who here has really read Jane's? Number three, mind or brain. Number four, minor change of wording. Number five, fair use rationale for image origin of consciousness. So, that, yeah, you know, even even trying to make sure that they have the fair use, you know, case stated appropriately for grabbing the book cover, I guess. Responses section, anthropology question, academic process criticism, removal of Daniel Smith sourced sentence. Number 10, dubious. 11, full text references that are supportive or critical of Jane's theory. 12, bicameralism in Stevenson. That's Neil Stevenson, the author. So they go, you know, they go on. It goes on. Da 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 da. Responses to this subject. These the, uh, number fifteen was this article is written from a severely pro bicameralism bias. So here's a here's here's a, just to give you some highlights of this page. Uh, what I see here is a is a uh, reflection of the public academic debate between the uh, pro Jainists and the uh, anti Jains camps. Uh, reflected in the back end of this article. So here under who here has really read Jane's? It seems like there is significant confusion about Jane's theory. Some editors have either not really read Jane's or maybe they did so a long time ago and forgot. Not having read Snow Crash, that's Neil Stevenson, I don't know how Stevenson reworks the theory, but I suspect reading Jane's through Stevenson may be the culprit. Anyone else here read Jane's recently or is it down to me to fix it all? Uh, proceeding, unsigned, comment added by somebody, somebody. Go ahead and fix, exclamation point. I heard the guy give a talk sometime in the 80s, and he was amazing. I've been wanting to read the book ever since, but I looked at it once or twice, and it seemed too deep for me. Next comment here is, I've read the book within the last year. I can get a copy, blah, blah, blah. Let me know of anything. So, you know, this is a, a, a long discussion thread that I'm not going to read for you. Uh, but what I indicated is there's thousands and thousands of words here, edits going back and forth, um, improvements to the article. This article is a product of a lot of different people's work right now. And the transparency of being able to see the back-end conversation about it, the debate indeed, um, for me, adds a lot of richness to the entire topic. So I've had fun with this uh, talk page on the article, and you can get to it directly from the page on bicameralism, which, I, again, should already be in the top of my show notes. I'm scrolling up to make sure I've already got it. Ding, 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 ding. And I don't. We'll grab it right now. It's just not in the list. So, doing that live for you guys. Got about 10 or 11 links here for you in the show notes on that. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I really liked Wikipedia for my source uh, for this today. And I think that if you take an extra moment to look deeper into a Wikipedia article, if it's flagged strangely one way or the other, Sometimes it may behoove you to, to read it anyway and to read the, the debate going on behind the scenes on that given article to get the full context.
because there's still, I believe, quite a bit of value there, both in Jane's theory, period, but in the way the article was put together for us to learn about the subject. So, and that's Wikipedia, right? So I thought it was great. Bicameralism, though, I think it's a topic we'll revisit in different ways. It'll it it's become part of our sort of picture now. Cybernetics as well. Behaviorism. These are terms that I would have uh, eschewed previously and gone for something a little bit uh, juicier sounding like social engineering. That's what it would have seemed like to me before. I doubt the people performing the engineering of the socials use those terms. They might speak a little more subtly of it. Uh, one of the last things that I want to mention is one of the weirdest takeaways that I got from the bicameralism discussion. It rang a bell with me as soon as I started reading about bicameralism and then like went off on my little offshoots of the other consciousness science areas, cybernetics. I stumbled across a Reddit thread like a week ago, two weeks ago. And it wasn't just a thread, it was like a, a post that has its own entire subreddit, but it's a really tiny subreddit. It's only got like 30 or 40 people in it. And there's only so many articles in the whole subreddit. The subreddit was called Homo Divinus. And uh, so the woke bicameral folks, the early conscious folks in history, sounded to me a lot like these Homo Divinus that I just read about a couple of weeks before. And I found such an, it was such an intriguing story. I'm going to go ahead and light one more joint. And I'm going to introduce you guys all to Homo Divinus through a post that's only a month old. Okay, and this, this subreddit has grown since I first discovered it. There's 293 members in here now. I'm pretty sure there were only 30 or 40 members in here a couple of weeks ago. So this community is growing. There's probably a lot of posts in here already that I've missed. But let's smoke one together. I'm going to read you most or all of this introduction to Homo Divinus post from this thread. I'm going to give you the, the link to the subreddit so you can go check it out yourself as well. And you tell me if it doesn't sound a little bit like early bicamerals waking up. It almost seems as though the author of this thread is aware of the early consciousness question too based on one paragraph in here that kind of acknowledges it. But check this out. Let's, let's spark this. You're going to love this. So this just like scrolled up on my Reddit homepage feed. I don't, I'm not sure how. It's only got like 50 upvotes, this story, this thread. All right, so the, the author of this thread in R. Homo Divinus was user Grampong, G-R-A-M-P-O-N-G. Grampong, I'm not even asking your permission. I'm just reading this shit. A long, long time ago, this tale starts out about 2 million years ago with Homo erectus spreading from Africa. As always... Threads to this tale extend back further into the past, but this is where the current tale starts. He's talking now and has just acquired his neat, new, 
Acheulean toolkit. Africa and his outdated Aldovan toolkit has been left behind, and he's conquering the globe, spreading across all habitable Eurasia, reaching the Sunderland Peninsula in Southeast Asia by 1.7 million years ago. Science tells us that the Homo erectus population that remained in Africa evolved into several other hominid species over the many millennia, eventually resulting in Homo sapiens about 100,000 years ago. There's a very spotty archaeological record for Southeast Asia, Australia, or the islands from the time of the arrival of Homo erectus until recently, archaeologically speaking, in parentheses. And some of what little that has been found has since been lost. Again, in parentheses, I'm looking at you, Peking man. I believe he was a hoax character, wasn't he? A fake missing link. Homo sapiens populated the globe and this area in the last 75,000 years after the Toba volcanic eruption, leaving a huge gap of over 1.5 million years in the record in between with little evidence. What happened to that Homo erectus population that reached the tropical paradise which was Sunderland? Forever is a very long time. What happened is a population of Homo erectus reached the Sunderland, discovered the secret of immortality, and became Homo divinus, the immortal gods. Immortality was a game changer, to say the least. A single lifetime was no longer the planning horizon for members of Homo divinus. They could plan projects that might take thousands of years to complete and know that they would be reaping the benefits themselves. Homo divinus was no longer limited by their initial genetic code and were able to update their genetics as time went on. This allowed Homo divinus to always have the best genes available at any given point in time from which to choose to build their bodies. As new genetic improvements happened, those would then be incorporated into the bodies of Homo divinus. The manner in which the gods achieved immortality was biotech. Creatures go around eating things. That's the way of the world. Homo sapiens have to be told not to put things into their mouth. And Homo erectus couldn't have been any different. They traveled all the way to the Sunderland, playing that same survival of the fittest game their ancestors had played gobbling up every leaf, grub, fish, fruit, lizard, tuber, and anything else they could find. So they're indicating here that by sheer variety of diet, this contributed somehow to discovering the elixir of life, right? The fountain of youth. Make no mistake. Sundaland and Sahul have an unsurpassed level of incredible tropical biodiversity. Modern medicine has barely touched the treasure trove of complex chemical compounds, which is found in nature. We know there are many secrets of longevity, and perhaps even immortality, just waiting for the right combination of plants to be found and prepared in just that right way, which we haven't figured out yet. Trying to figure out precisely what that initial combination happened to be makes looking for a needle in a haystack look like looking for a needle in a haystack. But given the reward, continued looking is well worth it. That's in parentheses. So I don't know how that, why that's in parentheses, because this is all commentary from the author, right? Stuart Kaufman explained through self-organizing systems how virtual certainty arises 
despite each individual combination being infinitesimally unlikely. Abiogenesis, life arising out of more basic components, is another example. As additional items are added to the set of ingredients, the number of combinations increases exponentially, just like adding more lottery balls for a random draw increases the possible combinations. With enough combinations, even infinitesimally small odds results in an overall system probability increasing to a limit of one as the number of combinations goes to infinity. At this point, a hazy picture begins to emerge, even if the label on the bottles isn't legible to find out all the ingredients. Promise it's going to get really good. Hail Atlantis. Transition to immortality would have come as an understandable shock to Homo Divinus and would have required them to adjust to their new reality. After the shock wore off, Homo Divinus now faced an Earth where they were immortal, could talk to each other about the Akulian toolkit they had and the ability to upgrade their genetics with which to pursue their path forward. At that point, that's it. There were no spaceships or pyramids or slave species of hominid or lost civilizations yet. Only immortal hominids who can improve themselves with a bunch of rocks for weapons versus the rest of the world. Needless to say, they definitely figured some things out along the way and kept improving themselves. Plato wrote about, and Donovan sang about, their civilization as Atlantis. The gods proceeded to create a paradise for themselves. And the more they learned, the greater that paradise became for them. They traveled the world and found their backward, less developed cousins everywhere. At that point, the gods took control of those other hominid species that existed and started shaping them in different ways, breeding and designing hominids to suit their needs. Homo sapiens are simply the last of a long line of those species designed to be a servant-slash-experimental species for the gods. So who are the, who are the supposed Atlanteans? Toth Hermes, right? Um... Tataikan, Tetawakan, let's, uh, Quetzalcoatl, right? There we go. I think I was butchering a city name before that with Tetuacan. Well over a million years passed between when the gods achieved immortality and when they created Homo sapiens. When I look around at how much Homo sapiens have accomplished starting from some dropped class notes a scrap heap, and some hints from the prompt corner in 5,000 years, I cannot even begin to imagine how much immortal gods could accomplish in over a million years. As these new immortals proceeded to refine and improve both themselves and their biotech, their intuitive mastery of genetics allowed their progress to have minimal environmental impact. They extended their mastery over the earth in intuitive, natural ways rather than premeditated and consciously. That came later as they developed hominids with the mental capacity to do those things, thereby acquiring the ability themselves. And therein lies the tieback. All right, that last part was also in parentheses from the original poster here in Homo Divinus. the sentence before it also. So, they extended their mastery over the earth in intuitive, natural ways. Reminds me of the difference between 
inductive uh, reasoning and science derived from it and uh, like deductive reasoning or I should say experimental science okay intuitive versus where they say here rather than premeditated and consciously these these homo divinists weren't conscious in that way yet that came later in parentheses as they developed hominids with the mental capacity to do those things thereby acquiring the ability themselves so you're a early human highly educated by a homo divinus lord who's developed your entire species to be their little friends pets all right if you will mascots and you begin to become a bit conscious in subtle ways that maybe make you different and maybe even more cunning than them luckily for them they're almost unkillable and you know unspeakably long-lived and probably bigger than you and all sorts of other great things that let them maintain their you know uh prevalence and dominance over you but uh indeed they're the gods but your very soul your introspective soul would have caused you to look at them in many ways with fear sure respect and awe and everything like that that came from when you were first born and brought up in their system but as a as a as a woke educated skilled adult of the class you know that would be their servant army the ones they let the closest to them you might have seen too much you might have known too much you see them acting less conscious less woke they must seem they might seem scary they might seem savage even though they need to be respected and feared wild stuff this story just gets my brain just going and going and going it's, I don't think it's the weed I think it's the the concept the subject matter they continue though homo divinus learned mathematics geometry engineering sound vibration and light eventually they mastered gravitational power and were able to travel to the moon and the planets they could lob objects from orbit with the precision the superpowers today can deliver bombs with power of the earth and volcanoes were theirs to command they conquered space in just under 1 million years ago when the earth's temperature cycles went from the 41,000 years cycle to a much more erratic cycle of every 100,000 years must be referring to ice ages right of some kind as the atlanteans improved their bodies and minds their intellectual ability and capacity for aesthetics and moral development increased They built homes and retreats for themselves around the globe in those most beautiful of places waterfalls mountain tops seashores lakes mouths of rivers etc all places and vistas that sing to a hominid soul they called home the tropical capital of atlantis was near where they gained immortality just off sundaland in the java sea was destroyed by the Toba eruption 75,000 years ago. Many remnants of Atlantis now lay sunken beneath the sea. Prior to 14,000 years ago, sea levels 
had spent 120,000 years, 40 meters below the current level. Ruins are going to be found drowned worldwide at roughly this depth. This is one reason which helps explain why so little physical evidence has been found for Atlantis. That, and they have an ongoing effort of covering their tracks, don't they, Dr. Hawass? In parentheses here, this is the author, and not me. Uh, that's obviously about famous Egyptologist from all the TV shows, uh, Dr. Zahi Hawass, I believe is his name. The Hakahominid Game of the Gods. Once kick-started, immortality allowed the gradual snowballing of Atlantis. Advancement in technology is driven by the exponential increase in possible combinations, which comes with a linear increase in diversity. In parentheses, thank you for showing me this insight, Dr. Arthur. Hominid diversity exploded right after the date identified for the discovery of immortality happening. More hominid genes allows Homo divinus, being a master of genetics, more options on how they can improve themselves and prompts better ideas for their next hominid species to harvest from to improve themselves. Rinse and repeat ad infinitum. The family tree of the genus Homo shows exactly what is to be expected if a bunch of gods were throwing whatever ideas they had for build a better hominid, in quotes, at the wall, learning from the results, and trying again. The gods would also personally breed with their vastly superior bodies, the best that divine power could provide, with their created species, in order to create demigods, who would then offer very special genetic diversity. All the pointless human sacrifice and war is simply a product of economic efficiency. The various hominid species is to provide genetic diversity to be harvested. So once a member of Homo Naledi has finished reproducing, they were basically an ongoing expense with no benefit. War was also a field test of the hominid models. So this is a reference to, uh, you know, the Nephilim, who saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and decided to take them, those of who they chose as wives, right? And they bore children unto them. These were the men of renown, they're, you know, giants, etc. To butcher my paraphrase at the very end there really nicely. <laughs> uh, the reference before that of their homes around the world, the megalithic Greco-Roman arches and columns and domes and towers and redoubts and walls and star forts and Colosseums, pyramids. Modern Homo sapiens likely would handle a situation where they became immortal and could harvest genes from chimps to enhance themselves very poorly. Few of those people would show much mercy towards those chimps once all benefit had been extracted, and those who did would most likely lose out to those who did not. After all, what would be the point in funding an old chimps home? I don't know what the need for that whole conversation was other than to awkwardly talk about genetic engineering and eugenics some more. Uh, moving on, though. Bang, zoom. You're going to the moon. 
by the point in time the gods decide on Homo sapiens as the last hominid standing. Homo divinus had long, long ago mastered spaceflight and explored the solar system. Just as Homo sapiens spent millennia looking longingly at the moon as a location they could dream of going, but didn't know how to get there. So, too, did Homo divinus look for over a million years at the stars with a yearning that could not be satisfied. While they could travel the solar system, their immortality and improvement of themselves was tied to Earth. They needed the resources Earth provided. This prevented travel to the stars. While longing for the stars, the gods continued to war amongst themselves, including using weapons of mass destruction. The arms race kept escalating until the moment that changed everything. Toba. Toba was the climax to the internal battles amongst Homo divinus. Homo divinus competed to develop better hominids and Homo sapiens, and often personally led their hominids on Earth in various ways. The fate of the hominids helped determine the fate of their sponsor, gods. Particularly poorly performing gods vanished from the Earth, just like poorly performing species of hominid or Homo sapiens civilizations. The Toba eruption destroying their homeland and capital, inflicted a deep and fundamental wound in the soul of Homo divinus. The way they had been operating needed to change. At this point, as much of the infrastructure of Homo divinus was moved off Earth. So at this point, much of the infrastructure of Homo divinus was moved off Earth, while operations on Earth moved into a new phase. Now, I don't know, he doesn't specify Mars, the moon, where they went. The enormous problems associated with fighting each other on Earth were highlighted, and cutting the tether that held Homo divinus to Earth became the top priority. Once the breakthrough happened, interesting choice of words, the gods no longer needed any more hominids. So I guess once the breakthrough of getting to Homo sapiens, they didn't need any more new, different hominids. All further genetic development could be self-contained, with no need to involve any other hominid species. Oh, they didn't even need us, because they got a breakthrough for themselves. Not that any hominid genetic improvements that happened, quote, in the wild would be refused. Homo divinus could now place all, everything they needed, onto a spaceship and head to the stars, as they had been dreaming for hundreds of thousands of years. All that was needed was to build the ships and figure out what, if anything, to do with Earth and the hominids left behind. The post-Toba period was, the was when the consolidation of hominids into a single species started. Building off a single Homo sapiens base model would allow for standardization and be easier for interstellar space than having to work from the much larger variability found at the genus rather than the species level. All the experiments were gradually merged into a single one or ended by whatever means necessary. The Neanderthals were one of these different and more recent and more successful species of hominid designed by the gods and then extinguished as a failed experiment, perhaps as punishment for transgressions. The Giza complex was possibly built as a replacement for the equipment destroyed in the Campi Fligari eruption 40,000 years ago, which was part of the final solution to the Neanderthals problem. So earlier they mentioned that they had volcanoes and earthquakes at their fingertips. Atlantis then allowed Homo sapiens, the last hominid left besides themselves, to populate the Earth. Homo divinus ruled as immortal gods, giving mankind laws, culture, and everything else as described in the ancient texts. 
the gods required worshippers. The pyramids were biotech machines, which gave the gods their immortality and maintained it, among other things. Sid Meier's Civilization, the OG version. They back away from their control of Homo sapiens gradually. First, instead of simply leaving hominids to fend for the most part on their own, the god ruled over Homo sapiens directly after hundreds of generations optimizing Homo sapiens to finally live in civilization. The gods withdrew further, with only occasional appearances in public, with kingship established. I've posited before, by the way, that any gods or titans, any immortal beings who lived on Earth after a certain period of time, like when uh, humanity reached a certain population, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how awesome you are, you can only keep so many people happy. You can only fight off so many foes. You can only keep so many people safe. So at a certain point in time, it might become uh, very prudent for a lot of immortals, even whole populations of them, to kind of recede from the scene when humanity started hitting, you know, that first hundred million or that first billion. I don't know. Homo divinus had simply switched their strength through genetic diversity program from creating various species of the genus Homo to creating races of the species Homo sapiens and placed them around the world. Each civilization got a set of gods to match their genetics, coming in a complete pantheon to cover every aspect of life. Osiris, Isis, and Thoth went to Egypt and ruled over those Homo sapiens. Well, Enki and Inanna went to Mesopotamia and ruled over the Homo sapiens between the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates, and so on, across the globe. From there, the gods personally ruled and instructed Homo sapiens on how to live and organize a society. The gods had their civilizations battle each other to test their genetic and technological fitness in the ongoing effort of increasing the genetic options Homo divinus had available to them. After all, the gods can only be as good as their best combination of their best parts. Better ingredients, better gods. Papa, pata. <laughs> They're having fun. The success or failure of their sponsored civilization directly impacted the gods involved. And yes, the gods used their created species to extract resources and as labor on projects and other things. Time to tip the chessboard. For hundreds of thousands of years, the gods ruled over hominids of Earth, creating and maintaining them for the gods' use and benefit. Year after year, this continued. Decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. In short, a really long time. The gods had populated the earth with all sorts of hominids, from miniature hobbits in the forests of Flores to the six-figured, fingered giants of legend around the globe. Homo sapiens had been chosen as the last hominid standing and were chosen to populate the earth 
there was a few problems with that plan, as all those other hominids the gods had already created. The gods had chosen Homo sapiens, but those other hominids were not about to leave the chosen species alone, or go quietly into that long dark night. I like this, you know, the giants, the elves, all the cre- you know, the dwarves and hobbits who we all say were myth today, right? The gods realized that something had to be done for Homo sapiens to have a chance. So they invented or invited a really big, nasty, feathered serpent to come crash their hominid free-for-all. They knew all about the dinosaurs and the turd that fell into their Yucatan punch bowl and realized that drastic times called for drastic measures. So what is that? They brought in some dragons? (laughs) The OG doomsday preppers. The gods made sure there were bunkers to protect the Homo sapiens they chose to save. Each area of the world had facilities, from the Chinese grottos to the underground cities of Cappadocia to the vast complex under Giza, to high in the Andes at Machu Picchu and anywhere else the gods thought might be safe from the coming disaster. In addition to the population which was saved in these bunkers, various gods selected favorites and warned them to allow them to prepare and save themselves. Their names were Noah, Manu, Utnapishtim, Dukalion, Nu, etc. Maybe Gilgamesh, right? They built various ships to ride out the waves. The rest of the Homo sapiens and other hominid species were left to their fate. So they flooded the place, right? To tip the chessboard, to clear the playing field. Deep, deep, deeper impact. Just under 13,000 years ago, the main body of the comet, perhaps 150 miles in diameter, plunged into Antarctica at the potential impact site I identified. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Striking at a very acute angle with a force greater than the Chicxulub impact. This mass tore into the earth, dragging and shearing the crust over the mantle. So he's a crustal shift uh, advocate here. Rotating the crust 30% to the south. The meteorite finally came to rest under Wilkes Land and has been detected as an enormous gravitational anomaly. Okay. I'll take your word for it right now. The crust shift moved the land from underneath the water, forcing the seas over their normal limits to the north before they recoiled back toward their natural location and rushed back south, flooding all those areas next. The sloshing around the globe would continue for a while until all the waters achieved something resembling an equilibrium. This crust shift is what has forests under glaciers in Antarctica, while mammoths are flash-frozen with food in their bellies half a globe away. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's fun. That's really neat explanation. We're buying everything else, right? So let's go with it. 
This once in a hundred million year or so event would be bad enough on its own, but it brought friends. Hiawatha decided to land in Greenland, while other meteors scattered the globe. All the ejecta and water and energy resulted in the hot rain of Jewish legend, which scalded the skin of sinners. This was the most destructive day for Earth in many millions of years. The next few were not far behind. There's got to be a morning after. And there was a morning after. Eventually. All that water and energy took a while to work its way through the Earth's system. Eventually, that dove came back with its olive branch, and everyone was safe to emerge. Everyone now laid eyes on a world which they did not recognize. Almost everything which they had known when they entered was now gone, wiped from the face of the earth. Second star to the right, and straight on till morning. At this point, the gods were over this planet. I, I'm gonna head out. Homo sapiens were used to extract the resources to build the interstellar spaceships. They were used to mine and extract the resources from around the world necessary for the excursion of Homo divinus into the interstellar void, now that self-contained ships were possible. The idea of mankind's cousins sailing the stars is kind of cool. And that only those gods willing to stay behind on this mud ball, either the very selfish or the very altruistic, certainly fits well with what is related in ancient history. So there the author indicates that we might still have some few of these left on Earth today, but not most of them. But even they might be able to be very interesting and compelling and perhaps influential beings, albeit unseen. The St. Germains of our world, Rasputins. Adventures in Babysitting The gods have never left us alone. But rather, they have simply done their best to automate us, to take care of ourselves. Left a few house sitters with babysitting duties, went away and stopped back periodically to see how things are going, and harvest anything worth harvesting. There are signs, but not too much, that would be too obvious, that much of mankind's path has been nudged and shoved by Homo divinus. The goal is to have Homo sapiens take more and more control of their destiny after having been created as a slave species. It's been a long trek, and we've been an unruly horde to try and corral. The gods have tried very hard since the beginning of the Axial Age to allow Homo sapiens to think they, rather than an earlier species of hominid, controlled the steering wheel of destiny. We're specially chosen by God were the center of the universe, were the pinnacle of evolution, as if that were such a thing, in parentheses. In my opinion, the gods really have done their best to hide the training wheels and allow Homo sapiens to think they actually know how to ride a bike. It's a good one. <laughs> the gods flow through us today, as they always have. Their genes are the same, the selection and training varies, and their lineages maintain leadership positions while interbreeding with Homo sapiens, divine presence passing from history gradually over 2,500 years, from 5,000 years ago to 2,500 years ago, 
Today their heritage is found amongst the Freemasons. Trilateral Commission, Bilderbergs, Illuminati, country clubs, etc. I've said that a few times recently. People underestimate country clubs in terms of uh, what they're all about and who's who their membership constitutes and what gets done in them. I think country clubs are intriguing. But wait, there's more. And this is really their conclusion on this one. Homo divinus has always been part of a homo sapien communities, but they also observe us from without as well as from within. The gods' vastly superior technology is what we see today as UFOs and the like. Those are not alien beings that originated on another planet and came here. Those are our cousins, the gods. After World War II, the strategy changed from spiritualism, theosophy, giants and the like, to a futuristic science based on UFO strategy. Changing times, changing narratives. Secret bases in Antarctica, on the far side of the moon, and on Mars are well within the ability of Homo Divinus. From there, and from within human civilization, they are still designing and shaping us to fit their needs and goals, and trying to help us become better and not blow ourselves up. So there we go. So many of those mysteries in one pretty box with a bow on it. Origin of Mankind, Atlantis, the Pyramids, the Gods, Immortality, Secret Societies, UFOs, etc. All get explained through the species of Homo Divinus discovering immortality around 1.8 million years ago and what those gods decided to do from there. So this article has 59 comments on it. Most of them are really thoughtful comments. I'm not going to go into the comments on it. Um, you know, this thread really is an article. The the uh, OP, uh, Grandpong, did an amazing job. I think it's a, a, a spectacular post. Um, it's 98% upvoted. And the subreddit based around it has a lot of posts that give additional uh, information many of them are coming from this uh, user right now I've seen several other posts by them but I think there's a couple other posts in this uh, let's see this is mostly actually right yeah no mostly Grandpong there's one uh, in here called Rita Drome um, but it, that's more like an elementary fun question like what customs would be appropriate for a homo divinus Halloween <laughs> um, but uh, so Grandpong seems to be running the show in here. Uh, I haven't reached out to this uh, individual at all. Uh, I think I may consider doing so soon just to let them know that, you know, we covered their intro and I'm going to be pointing people at the subreddit. Uh, so hopefully when you get to the subreddit, one or two of you uh, might, you know, hopefully comment something thoughtful on one of the threads that's in here about the homo divinus uh theory if we want to call it that and you know feel free to let them know that you heard about it here on the podcast that would be great uh i i thought it was really amazing and it and it, it, it so the tie-in back to the consciousness question was where the op here Grandpong, pointed out that homo divinus would have done things one way at first and then only later evolved 
that planning capacity, that introspective calculating capacity, and that they may have developed that in reflection of us and what became expressed in our DNA, their own children's DNA, their own creation's DNA. I thought it was just so juicy and tied right back into the bicameral mind theory, the cybernetics question, the behaviorism question. I love it all. I also have a couple of docs that I'm going to include in some form. I think I'm going to attach them. Okay, so for this, you'll need to go to my actual podcast page. I don't think you'll be able to get this from YouTube or what have you, but if you visit bakedandawake.com and click on this episode from there, it'll transport you to my hosted page where things like attachments are available. I'm going to attach several historical documents for you that I just pulled down off of the Zertus Tartary Discord, my uh, favorite uh, Discord that I'm uh, a member of where we talk all things Grand Tartaria and uh, the Mud Flood Mysteries, and I'll include a link for that uh, Discord server as well for you in the show notes. But user EinerJS, who's a subscriber of mine on YouTube and who's left a number of good comments and thoughtful comments on my YouTube videos over the last uh, few months or year, thank you, Einer, posted several documents that are factual accounts of man-made earthquakes and eruptions in the late 1700s, early to mid 1800s. About five examples. And uh, let's go with uh, Artificial Earthquake 1760. That doc has a really kind of hard to read font, so I won't go for that one here. Let's go for 1848 to take it right into the Tartarian timeline for you. And these are going to be, these are like PNGs, so they're, they're like a static image file, not like a PDF that I've got here, but we'll peek at this one and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Just let it come into focus here. You gonna focus? All right, so this is a artificial earthquake, 1848. And this is really hard to read in this form, but it says, is it not possible to make an artificial earthquake? Question mark. An artificial earthquake, this is 1811. May be made thus, take up to 15 pounds of sulfur and as much of the filings of iron and knead them with common water into the consistency of a paste, this being buried in the ground, will in eight or ten hours' time burst out into flames and cause the earth to tremble all around to a considerable distance. This this page is really not rendering properly for me here, so I'm going to make sure I get you guys the right, um, the right full resolution versions of these files that I've got um, before I include them as attachments. I'm going to try to pull up 1811 here and see if it doesn't look better when I... Yeah, when I enlarge it, it seems to lose a lot of clarity, so I might not have downloaded the original file with, with the full resolution file. So they go on to say, From this experiment, we have a very natural account of the fires of Mount Etna, Vesuvius, and other volcanoes, they being probably set on fire at first by the mixture of such metallic and sulfurous particles. So their point there is, yeah, you can do it in a regular field and you get an effect, but you could perhaps kickstart a known volcano, which would possibly have earthquake consequences associated with that eruption uh, any time. Now, uh, 
1813, this theory seems to have been confirmed by experience. Mr. Winthrop, formerly professor of natural philosophy and something like astronomy in Cambridge University, observed, there is so strong an attraction between iron and sulfur that even the gross body of sulfur powdered and with an equal weight of iron filings and a little water made into paste in a few hours grows too hot to be touched and emits a flame. This paste, if put a few feet underground, will by degrees cause the earth over it to heave and crack, to let out the flame. Thus, da-da-da, something, something. Uh, so I'll, I'll include the best versions of these historical docs I can get you on man-made earthquakes, artificial earthquakes, just as a fun bonus to everything else and in support of the plausibility of ongoing civilization, cataclysmic resets potentially happening from time to time completely naturally and at other times completely artificially. Good times <laughs> all around. Uh, all right, and that's that's it. We're almost at two hours. I'm going to edit this as, as cleanly as I can. We're at about an hour and 45 right now by my raw audio calculations. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about the uh, bicameral mind theory of Julian Jaynes and uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts on that as well as on uh, your level of interest in a future episode on cybernetics slash behaviorism, sort of in-depth on both of those uh, since we just sort of breezed over them uh, both. Homo Divinus and the Homo Divinus subreddit with the Homo Divinus proliferator of information, user Grampong on Reddit, uh, just blew my mind the other day. And I thought, wow, it's like synchronicity that it tied into everything that we were just talking about uh, consciousness-wise, in my opinion. Uh, at least uh, I made those connections and I'm making the podcast. So that's the way we feel right now, right? I'm in possession of one book so far out of the two that I'm really excited to receive very soon that I hope to make the focus of at least a couple of episodes and uh, I'll let you know that that is going to be on a topic of a said mythical race of former hominids that might have been outcompeted and pushed out of existence by Homo Divinus in one of their many resets and it's not giants I'm really excited about them so Look forward to that. Uh, I'm, I've started teasing it on Instagram. I'll tease it more on Instagram soon. So follow me there because it's my last remaining social media platform at baked underscore and underscore awake. Uh, thanks to my friends uh, Bones and Tubbs at the Bones and Tubbs podcast for the shout outs uh, recently on their podcast as well. Those guys are really great. And uh, I strongly encourage anybody who hasn't checked them out to do so. They're going to be a great source for esoteric and occult and awesome topics of that nature. And they do a lot of sort of uh, social commentary uh, from the standpoint of the uh, ministry of what the fuck on the American politics scene these days, right? They're middle, middle American boys and a bit of a libertarian bent, so uh, be aware of that. But uh, they're really, they're thinkers and they're asking a lot of questions and they're pretty fair about it. So I really like them a lot. Hope you guys appreciated uh, this episode. Just jumping right in. I'm going to try to lower the overhead on the front end of the podcast and uh, just move into the content a little bit quicker each and every episode and pack them heavier and heavier. I've had a pretty mellow first couple of weeks of September just because we're getting the family back to school. So thank you guys for being patient with the episode this month. And uh, I'll 
probably get another one out to us here before the uh, month is out for sure as well because I, I have two or three great topics that are ready and have been jockeying for first position and next up for the last you know couple of months now so email me talk to us at bakedinawake.com as i said let me uh, know what you thought about this episode dm me on instagram too i, I respond to those as well uh, i love it any episode music you hear this week is almost definitely going to be from our wonderful friend auntie Lode. and uh check him out as well on instagram Lode. i'll put him in the show notes he's already in there always is so that said definitely let me know what you want to hear that's what that email address is about and i love to do episodes at uh, folks suggestions uh, when i get them uh got a couple in the hopper for just that reason Smokey. you know i'm thinking about you right now buddy so all right everybody else take it slow smoke some indica do shit anyway